Welcome back to this week's episode of The Intersectional Diary. Today our guest is a Bollywood fanatic, published editor, and host of the Queering Desi podcast, Priya Arora. Hi Priya, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you on. How have you been? Uh, not too bad. I think uh, I think the pandemic has really changed a lot of things for people. So, uh, you know, all things considered, I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, but it's been a tough time, I think, for everybody. Oh, definitely. I mean, the pandemic's changed our lives and turned them upside down, as, you know, Will Smith says, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and who is Priya Aurora? Um, The who is question is really tricky. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I can give you the conventional, like, Shabil. Um, (laughs) I uh, identify as a non-binary and queer, and I'm a community activist in the South Asian queer community for a long time. Um, I'm a writer. I've written about identity, um, my own included, as well as now more recently, Bollywood and South Asian pop culture. And uh, I also work for a news organization as a social media editor. Um, so I kind of wear a lot of hats. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. that's, not, that's not always easy. Um, but again, I'm, I'm grateful for all of those, those aspects of who I am. And I think as a total is, is more of what we're going to get into shortly. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of balls you're juggling there. I, how yeah. do you even manage your time with all of that? Um, you'll have to ask my wife because she constantly <laughs> tells me that I'm not juggling them very well. <laughs> Um, yeah it's it's tough um but I think as as I'm sure we'll talk about but so many of those things weave into each other um Mm -hmm. and all of those things make up really who I am um and so while it feels like I may be juggling several different balls but at the same time it's all me so it all comes from the same place I feel oh that's a nice way to put it I like that it's like different parts of you different passions yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and it's all me at the end of the day (laughs) That's nice. Um, So as you mentioned, you know, you're a diehard Bollywood fan and an editor for a large publication. Um, Now, these two topics have nothing to do with one another, but you found a way to unite these two passions of yours. Can you talk a little bit about that? The key of that question, I think, is the fact that your passions can look like so many different things. Um, Something I learned really early on in my journey is that your passion and what you do maybe as a career or day to day don't always have to align. Like for those people that do get to do that, that's great, right? But in yeah. in 2021, that is no longer the case. That you you know you can have several different passions, and what you do on a day to day basis um, may look completely different, right? Um, right? In a lot of ways, I'm lucky. I feel like, um, as I alluded to earlier, a lot of mm-hmm. my passions feel into each other. So for me, being a Bollywood fanatic um, and being a writer are really almost simultaneous now in a way that maybe they weren't growing up. Um, I didn't realize growing up watching Bollywood movies <laughs> that like I would have that I would have such a, you know, such a backing of it or such a that it just laid such a foundation for me for who I am. Right. But as I emerged as a writer, um, both in college and then thereafter and started to write about Bollywood, mm-hmm. um, I can see now like having something like a blog of my own where I was reviewing movies um, and things like that really fueled my both my writing career and my passion yeah. for Bollywood, right? So they, they again, just like kind of melded together. And I'm grateful for that now. Mm-hmm. where I'm at a publication where I have the opportunity to lift some of those voices and lift some of those narratives that I think 
especially nowadays are changing in Bollywood or oh like, God, so you know, much. The, yeah. And, and, and changing the conversation around representation, right. For South Asian pop culture as a whole. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I answer your question, but I think it's, it, they, they fuel one another. Um, and for me, I'm lucky to be able to do that, but yeah. now, but they didn't always like, they were, they were sometimes separate and sometimes I was leaning heavily into one and not the other. And so right. I think it's constantly evolving as well. I mean, I like that you mentioned that there has been a change in Bollywood itself, because if you look at the old movies that I'm looking at behind you, which is Kuch Kuch yeah. and DBLJ, yeah. like nobody really, if you look back on those movies, it's cringy at this point because nobody wants a Raj anymore. Nobody wants a whatever his name in the other movie was. And it just makes you think like it just shows you how much over time that the idea of what a significant others should look like has changed and it's changed for the better because I feel like people are now accepting the fact that we deserve more we don't want somebody that's creepy chasing us on a train and makes us I don't even know I don't even want to get into all the movies because they're so cringy when I look back on it yeah but yeah, I know we talked about that yeah I think that's a big that's a big change um especially not only in a partner but I think this is something I've written about as well but Bollywood is kind of, in my opinion, has split into two. Um, there's like a traditional Bollywood that still exists with like mm-hmm. a Salman Khan, Akshay Kumar, who are doing their like typical, you know, I'm a 52-year-old romancing a 20-year-old and doing all these action sequences that it's are- creepy. That, right. But audiences, you know, you have to give, you have to give due to like, they're doing it because they're making money out of it, which means okay. audiences are paying to see it. Right. That's so right. I have friends that I'm like, how are you crazy about Salman Khan when you know everything that you do about him? Oh um, God. But it happens and it's in our generation too. So there is wow. that Bollywood. And then there's like an emerging Bollywood and the one that really fascinates me and I focus on, which is not only streaming, but just in general, like a modern a more modern era of Bollywood. And I would hesitate to even call it Bollywood now at this point because it's <laughs> it's almost more than that. Like it's not yeah. the typical Bollywood we think of. It's it's women-led films, women-directed films, women-written films, right? I love and, that. and have leads like that. Or like you're saying, like more progressive thoughts about partners, families, sexuality, mm-hmm. desire. Yeah. Um, and I think those are two very separate things. Like, I think that's the struggle now for Bollywood and something that, like I said, I continue to be fascinated with is because yeah. internally, I think for that industry, it's like, which one do we take seriously? Because both are starting to make money and yeah. and some old players are not going to change those <laughs> habits. And some newer people are like, we've been waiting our whole lives for stuff like this, you know, and wanting to get into it. So it's it's a fascinating change that's happening. But I also think there's a part of the industry that's resisting it as well. I mean, I guess that does make sense because you have the older generation, like my parents and, you know, just them, they love their Salman Khan movies. They love their um, Shah Rukh Khan movies because it's an escape from reality and you don't have to think about everything that's happening in the world. Whereas the movies that, you know, our generation seems to enjoy more are the ones that touch on the hard topics because that's what we deal with in our real life. And we're not looking for it as an escape, but more of something to resonate with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's the key right there is like relatability and wanting to see and that's that's our generation as a whole, right? Wanting to see ourselves portrayed on screen. And I think um I think in a lot of ways Bollywood or like the new Bollywood still has a long way to go, but there's yeah. obviously been like light years of shift that maybe we never realized <laughs> or thought were possible. I love that it has happened. I feel like it started from like web series itself because I mm-hmm. before I started seeing like Netflix produced Bollywood movies, I maybe can we call them like Nollywood because they're like Netflix <laughs> produced. <laughs> 
I mean, if Bollywood picks up this name, I want royalty. But <laughs> um, I feel like I've seen the web series really start that whole train where they started talking about living relationships, like little things. And that was not something that was ever touched on in old Bollywood. And I feel like web series started doing this. And then that's where they saw that, oh, people actually do enjoy this. And Netflix and Bollywood kind of picked it up and started going towards that way. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is really the key to the shift, right? Is that, um, you know, I say the split has occurred, but actually what's a larger picture, if you look at streaming as a whole and shows as well, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. is that we don't look at Bollywood the same way that we once used to, right? Bollywood was the entertainment, the one source, you know, you would watch the same video, the you know, the music videos from the, <laughs> from the movies, you know, yeah. on weekend. So those were the kinds of things that we looked to as a representation of our culture, especially as diaspora folks, right? Mm-hmm. But now because of the way that like globalization and the modern era has really changed things, like we don't have to rely on Bollywood. We really yeah. don't, right? Like what used to be quote unquote indie films or non-mainstream mm-hmm. films or non-commercial cinema is no longer cast aside and is readily accessible. I think that's the biggest change. It's not that those things didn't exist before or maybe fewer of them existed, sure. Yeah. But we now have access to them in a way that is unprecedented, right? And so mm-hmm. Bollywood can continue to be its same old misogynistic, <laughs> old crazy, you know, like they can stay the same. But we can also say, like, we could choose better. You know, yeah. we have more options now. We have more access now. And, yeah, so platforms are going to see that and say, look, we want to invest in that and really create content that meets that need of the audience. And then right. we can say, look, I don't want to go see Salman's latest movie. I'd rather watch X, Y, and Z show or this, you know, these newer things that are coming out. And that's a choice. Or you can watch both. Like, it yeah. it's, exists on the same plane in a way that Bollywood used to kind of dominate the plane. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like these web series and these shows on Netflix or Amazon Prime, like Four Shots, Please, and just like so many other, they've honestly helped create conversation with my generation, with like our generation and our parents' generation. For example, I watch Four Shots, Please, with my mom. And before we watched it, like there are some things that on that show that I don't want to watch with my mom. It's awkward. <laughs> but, um, you know, like we sat there, watched it, and it actually led to conversation that I feel like we wouldn't have ever had before because those are not just like those conversations aren't something that you just start from out of nowhere those are ones that you see on tv and that's when you start talking about it especially my parents who immigrated from India back when like 1991 or something so they still have a mindset that Indians are very conservative and you know like women are supposed to like listen and all that stuff And then they see these shows that show that that's not the case. And India itself has also progressed forward. And they don't see that in the Bollywood movies. So being able to see that and have that conversation, I feel like is helping not just the media industry, but it's helping our relationship and help close the generation gap between our generation and our parents' generation. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Another show I'll mention in that regard is Made in Heaven, which Mm. I also loved on Amazon. Um, It's a similar thing, right? You take a familiar premise like like weddings or or just female friendship, like former shots, please. Like, and and yeah, you're catering to a completely new audience. And and I think the key here is not only a generation gap, which is so true. I think it's also diaspora, right? Not to center ourselves in the narrative, but Um, you know, like these platforms are doing so because they know that there's a global audience. You know, we're all watching international shows. We watch K-dramas. We can now watch, like I watched, um, I forgot the name of the show, but lead actors from I I May Destroy You, 
Is that the show? Oh. She was in a she was in a South African series before. Oh, uh, this... I know what you're talking about. Yes, oh, God, so there... I can't remember the name. <laughs> I know. So there was a South African series she was in um, before, and I saw it on Netflix before the the newer show came out, and uh, before If I May Destroy You came out. And I remember being like, "Wow, I never would have watched or could have watched like a South African." drama or like something serious like that that I just I would never have had access to or known about we're watching things like Narcos we're watching like these platforms are catering to a global audience Mm -hmm. now that being said what you're saying is so valid of like what is the new generation in India and what are they you know thinking feeling writing about talking about yeah um and again to just uplift those narratives or invest in the content creation out of India and then say like this is on blast and it's not just for Indians anymore yeah um is really really changing the game yeah no I 100% agree like these shows especially like for example little things right um it started off as a web series and now it's on Netflix and I've had friends that are not Indian or that are not Desi watch that show and they love it and it's because it caters to not only just the Desi uh, or not just to Desi people but it caters to everybody that lives in a you know live in relationship or lives just has a significant other (laughs) Right, right. And I think that's the, that's the universality of these new narratives and something that I think old Bollywood can't really ever access Mm -hmm. is the relatability of things like modern relationships, or like I said before, sexuality, desire, parenting, families, like what do those notions mean and really questioning and challenging them, but at the same time saying, this is a real story about real people and you can relate to it regardless of your circumstance. Exactly. It's actually reminds me of a funny story because I, when I was in back in New York, I was showing one of my friends, white friend, he's British. I was showing him the movie um, Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum. And we had like um, subtitles on so he would understand it and everything. And when he was watching it, he's like, wow, they're so dramatic. Like, what is this? Is this what life is like? And I'm like, no, this is just a movie. This is not like actual reality. And so it like makes it hard for people that are not they see to show them Bollywood movies because yeah, they're fun and they're light and whatnot, but it doesn't really show like the Desi lifestyle. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to look at from that perspective because in the West, there was always this perception of Bollywood as not only melodramatic, but these like grand musicals, mm-hmm. um, which is so interesting to sh- see the shift now when you talk about films out of India. You can't just call them, like I said, Bollywood films, but you, can, yeah. you can't also rely on the fact that there's like a... a foot tapping Punjabi yoga <laughs> track or like a you know that that used to be such a crux of how it was known you know widely oh Bollywood those big musicals with the beautiful costumes and the and that's that's kind of again just that old notion and so to break out of that and say you know we're not just you can focus on costumes you can focus on those songs and things like that but the yeah. content now matters a lot more than it used to and 100%. that's like changing the global perception too because our western counterparts who maybe had that old ideal of like oh bollywood movies aren't they really melodramatic aren't they really like you know and then it's like you could say like you know now now that's not the case and yeah we were really pigeonholing ourselves <laughs> by just doing films that were like focused on on these like limited just showy and and loud kind of things rather than focusing on the content I mean I guess that makes complete sense I think that Bollywood itself is just catered to the people based on the generation and what that generation needed in that time back in the day they needed somebody as a release as a way to get away from reality whereas now we want it as a way to see what reality is like and have it reflected so that's 
that's really a key thing. And I think that's why that schism that I've mentioned has happened because there right. is a large segment of the audience that does not want to see realistic and painful things on screen and they just yeah. want the escape. And so there is still a market for those films. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's the challenge now is how do you make realistic things also approachable or also not so dense. Mm -hmm. um, I think you see, that's why you see the emerging kind of genre of like crime thrillers, for example, or like big in terms of Indian, you know, web series and stuff. Now you see right. sacred games, you see like things like that are just, so you have that kind of a, a gritty, not melodramatic kind of thing, but it's also <laughs> not like, oh, this is my life. It's too real. Like, this is us, yeah. the, the American show. I could never get into it because I, I started the first season. <laughs> so, okay, so, so the issue is I started the first season like several times and I just yeah. kept being like, this is so good, but it's too real. <laughs> and I like do not want to engage. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't get so, past the first yeah. episode three times. I watched the first episode three times. I kid you not. I just can't get past it. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of people being like, how dare you? You need to watch the show. I'm prepared for it. I've heard enough. I've heard that it's good. I, I get it. I just, it's too real. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> I've heard people just start crying and bawling and I'm like, maybe when I need a good cry, I'll watch it. Yeah, but exactly. right now I don't need a good cry. <laughs> My life yeah. has done that for me. <laughs> totally. It's so true. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the balance that's really hardest to achieve. Um, and I think, fictionalizing character like I really liked Made in Heaven for that they mm -hmm. talked about queerness for example in a way that had never been seen before in Indian screens and I think by externalizing it and making the character really compelling even for queer folks or for myself I'll say mm -hmm. like even though I saw like stuff that was relatable it wasn't as painful because it was like I'm so invested in this character I can now externalize and say the character is going through something which is making me feel things rather than saying oh no, this mirrors my life and is bringing up my own trauma. You know? Right, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Well, speaking of <laughs> queerness, let's dive into that. Sure, yeah. Um, so you obviously are a host of the podcast called Queering Desi, and it has a very wide and loyal follow following. I being one of them, I love your podcast. It's actually mm -hmm. one of, the, like, it inspired me for this podcast. So <laughs> thank you. That means yeah. a lot. <laughs> um, but I do want to learn like why you started the podcast, how you started it, like the whole story behind it. Yeah, for sure. So I, you know, I had been involved in the South Asian queer activist community for several years, first out in LA, and then I had moved out to New York um, almost a decade ago. And, you know, was really involved in a lot of uh, activisty things, as you can imagine, <laughs> protests or you know petitions and all the things that organizing kind of takes up in your life and I finding that community was was really life altering and affirming for me um mm -hmm. but the work itself after several years was really grueling and really took a toll on me so I took a step back and and I having been a part of that community for a while had those connections and had that chosen family mm -hmm. but I also on the like career track was studying to be a mental health counselor and wanted to work with queer populations and South Asian populations. Right. And I realized that my own passion for writing also, like, again, everything comes together, <laughs> was really like rooted in a fascination with narratives, right? I think so much of who we are as people is the story we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure we can all relate with people that um, are used to being a victim, for example, or have made that like the story they tell themselves about themselves and trying to alter that is really hard. Right. right. Um, that's an example. Right. And I think the narrative aspect of that 
is is so fascinating to me, especially in marginalized communities, because so often there are labels associated with that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's stigma around those labels. Um, there's all kinds of, there can be medicinal things or pharmaceutical interventions, or it gets so complicated. But right. what is this person experiencing? What is, what is their experience of their life with all of those things? And we're never just one thing, right? We, especially as South Asian queer people, but in general, as people, we're not just South Asian, we're not just Daisy, we're not just queer, we're not just writers, we're not just podcast. Like there's so <laughs> many overlying, overlapping identities, right? Yeah. So all of that is to say, you know, I had taken a step back and I had wanted to do a project where I gathered narratives. And initially I was thinking, of, you know, like a Humans of New York style blog, or something where I would basically get the narratives, but then write some aspect of their words down. So to disseminate those stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my, my then girlfriend, now wife had said, you know, what about a podcast? Because I, I'm a, as you can tell maybe from listening to this, I'm a storyteller. I love talking. Um, and she said, you know, I think I think a podcast would really be great. And I it just clicked for me because there's something so transformative about hearing someone's story in their own words, right? As a writer, mm -hmm. I wanna craft my own narrative and bring several strings together. Right. But the simplicity of having somebody just tell you their side of the story, mm -hmm. um, and hearing that as a listener, uh, with no other kind of uh, signals or any other in, in, you know, is really powerful I felt and podcasts were were having a boom at that time and <laughs> post serial and all of these things so it just felt like the right time um, mm -hmm. and I, I had luckily friends and, and community folks who I knew and I just literally you know bought a microphone and sat in my yeah. living room and started calling people <laughs> and recording you know, and said, hey, look I'm starting a podcast do you want to talk to me about it and yeah really my fascination was with expanding the narrative of queer South Asian folks beyond coming out. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something that drove the intent of it then and still does now is, you know, as South Asian queer folks, coming out is a really, really, really important experience. There's no discounting that at all. But I was also, you know, growing up, obviously I didn't have any, as we all did, like did not have anyone to look up to for that. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't know what happened after that. Like, right. you're not just queer, like, how do you exist in the world as a South Asian queer person with X, Y, and Z other identities? Mm -hmm. And so I talked to, you know, chefs and writers and comedians mm -hmm. and who are South Asian and queer, but they're also other things. And yeah. I wanted to hear about their life and how those identities kind of melded together, who they were, how they got there, what right. made them sick, you know? And I think moving past the narrative of, well, just coming out is like, you know, it's either bad or it's good, or it's, mm -hmm. you know... It, how are we as people and and how do you expect us to be right I think South Asian queer folks there are assumptions you can make about us just by knowing those labels or how we look or how we carry ourselves mm -hmm. but are you really like getting to know who we are right. um and challenging some of those narratives that that I think other folks who don't identify as South Asian or queer um might impose on the community so all of those things kind of drove I know it's a long-winded answer to you, <laughs> no no it's good yeah, drove drove the the idea of Korean DC and kind of how I approached it. Right. I mean, I think that's great because like you're saying, it's, you know, queer people, queer South Asian folks, they're not just queer. They're not just South Asian. There are like we people, just people in gen general are so multifaceted and there's so many parts to us that it's we want to get past that and also see them for them 
who they are, what they're doing in the world, who they represent, what they represent, and and how their experiences and how their experience as a queer person, how their experiences as a South Asian person has made them who they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like it, it's it's fascinating because there's there was such a wide range of experiences of people I talked to where mm-hmm. where someone like me, like being queer, maybe is something I'm known for. I'm really <laughs> out about, and some people aren't right. Like they happen to be. Yeah. Um, but like, for example, I talked to Nick Dodani, who is on Atypical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for someone like him, like his experiences in Hollywood as an, as just an Indian person or South Asian person were really, I mean, him being gay is like such a secondary or like outer lying thing than what mm-hmm. it means to be South Asian in Hollywood. Or And so hearing those experiences, because you, yeah. you might think, oh, you're like a queer South Asian, so like X, Y, and Z thing about you and assume those things, right? right. But to hear his experiences or hear what life is like for him as an actor or like auditioning mm-hmm. for roles can change how you might think about it. so you're like oh like for for people that are not south asian or queer like looking yeah. at somebody and saying oh like not all gay men are effeminate for example or oh there's gay south asians in hollywood even yeah maybe not even knowing that or how did you even get there what kind of family upbringing did you have and how does right. culture play a role because it plays a role for all of us right yeah. so i think in all of those ways it's been really fascinating to to delve into those narratives that way Right. I actually did not know he was gay. So okay. you make <laughs> so the fact that <laughs> so like you're right on the nose. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> My bad. That's okay. That's okay. Um, because the show focuses so much on. I mean, we're talking about atypical. The show focuses so much on the main character who is um, atypical, or he's on the spectrum, and um, the there. I think his sister who is um, queer and focusing on that. So they don't really focus on um, his identity at all. And I guess looking at it from having not known, I would have never guessed that in real life, like in reality that he was queer. And it just goes to show that, that especially South Asian people in Hollywood, in Bollywood play such a stereotype when it comes to queerness, that it's like, if you don't act like a certain way, then you're not queer. And I love that that, it's changing now. Yeah. And I think the problem also comes with the narratives. I mean, Hollywood is a whole different beast, but I would say yeah. it's like very much rooted in the narratives that are being funded, written, you know, like coming actually out. And I think Hollywood has a lot more work to do even in that <laughs> regard. But but yeah, that is something that like, like for example, that character in Atypical Zahid, he's, he's straight in that, you know. Yeah. And so it's like, what does it mean for for a gay guy like like <laughs> Patrick Harris playing yeah. you know Barney Stinson? How am I? Exactly. How are we challenging assumptions then about who you are as a person and who you are as an actor? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also providing an example, right? For for maybe someone like you that didn't know that Nick was gay, like to just say like, oh shit, like I have a role model now, or I have yeah. someone that I know, like that feels like someone I know, you know, and <laughs> and there's someone that I can look up to, and yeah. that. You know, being gay doesn't define him either. And exactly. so it's kind of, a, it, for me, like, it feels like a win-win in that scenario, right? No, 100%. Like, yeah. you see all these stars and you don't, like, I feel like especially recently, I don't know if you read this um, this statistic, I think it was one in five or one in six Gen Zers yeah. identify as queer. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's the case now, it's amazing because it's like everyone is so open to uh, to exploring their sexuality and being open about it I guess for the lack of words <laughs> but, yeah um, no I think it's I think it's fascinating um mm-hmm. 
I grew up, I, not to age myself, but I grew up in an era <laughs> almost when social media kind of didn't exist or like Facebook was very limited. And, you know, when I was kind of coming into my own realization of my queerness, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't know what it was, but I was like, I like girls and there's something happening there. And I Googled <laughs> gay Basie because I genuinely <laughs> did not know that like you could be both. Um, I, I just had no idea that that was possible. Yeah. Um, and that was how you kind of accessed information. And of course, I found, like I found Gacy Family, which is a blog based in India, um, that was kind of, again, really affirming for me. I started writing for them under a pseudonym when I wasn't out. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that is to say, I found some resources, right? Like even if they were limited. And I think now with the, the way that technology has shifted, the way that generations really have shifted and the way that mm-hmm. we're talking about this stuff, it's really opened a lot of doors. And I just want to say like, we, like even for me at that stage like I stood on the shoulders of giants because so many people had fought especially in the South Asian queer community I found out that there was such a rich history of those activist organizations that had mm-hmm. been in the realm since the 80s the 90s and I thought sat there thinking I was the first one you know <laughs> and so you know people had put in the work and I like I remain ever grateful for that work and again I hope that like my work with creating DC like lays the foundation for other people and that other people take it forward you know if G- Gen Zers are now more more comfortable identifying mm-hmm. in certain ways or those words now are more mainstream than they used to you know reclaiming queer was still new when I was yeah. out. you know <laughs> now now it's so normal right so like language and those things shift with each generation but I think it's so amazing to see and I think we 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 really owe a lot of gratitude to like all the people that have laid the foundation for that to happen and um I hope we recognize that right like I'm so proud of the newer generation for taking on some of these narratives that that we couldn't and the folks before me couldn't um but we you know we build each on each generation based on like all the people that have done it before us and and it's been great to just see that progression happen Exactly. Like the generation before us, us, the generation after us, everyone just paves a path to a point where this won't even be a conversation. Like, I think this was, I was talking to my sister about this, where we're, I think this show that was taking place in like 2100 or something, but different sexualities, different genders, all that. It was just, it was just the norm. Like, it wasn't like a topic of conversation. It's just how society functioned. Like, it was just the part of life, like the same way as, you know, I can't even think of whatever this example is, but it's just, it was a part of life and there was no need to like identify as something or identify something else just because everybody, I guess the, the normal was that you were queer or not the normal, the default was queer and non-binary. And then from there you go on to express, okay, well I'm straight. I am bi, I am lesbian, whatever the case is, or same with gender, you know, you start at the default is non-binary and then you go out and express, oh, I am she, her, or a they, them, or a he, him type of situation. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's so, so I interesting. I think like, I think that's just the, the ability to even make that the foundation is kind of, it's kind of altering, life altering, I think. And I think the, what's been great to see not only as, as people, the newer generation kind of doing that, but forcing systemic change, right? Mm-hmm. Um to see like, like there's been recent news that the, you know, the current administration in the U S wants to add um, a third gender or like gender X to passports, oh, wow. right? Like that's that awesome. could happen. Or that's on hopefully one of the things that <laughs> like, 
that's something that just like it could change things for people in a way like without having to prove any kind of medical um you know requirements and i think that's like like life affirming things for folks that have been around and been like hey we've been here we've been you know we've been trying for this i think making it the norm or being able to normalize talking about it also leads to like change right and there's Mm -hmm. there's people whose whose work it is that that again lays the foundation for saying like now the system has to change to reflect the people and the society Mm -hmm. that has already changed right um i do want to one thing you had mentioned reclaiming the word queer because i remember when i was younger um the word queer was used in a derogatory way and now it's used as a way to identify oneself if they obviously identify as queer so how I did want to know how did that meaning change and when did that change happen? Like how do you do you know more, more about that? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't know a lot about it, but I will say I think it's again just like work of like like the the folks before me. I feel like I came in at a time when queer was being reclaimed and queer mm-hmm. like I, for me personally I'll speak to my personal experience and maybe that'll help. But be, mm-hmm. I I knew that I you know was attracted to not just the opposite sex or men mm-hmm. and initially I you know and this is this is my own biphobia and my own lack of understanding but I initially identified as bi because I thought that that was the only I was like oh I you know I like everyone <laughs> I guess that's what it's called and I didn't know any better yeah. and eventually it was like oh no I exclusively like women so I'm a lesbian mm-hmm. but I had you know had a history of dating men and being with men and I you know I didn't feel like not that you have to only have had, you know, female experiences to be a lesbian. Right. I just didn't feel like the label fit. Mm-hmm. And so as I got involved in these activist spaces, as I learned the language that folks were using on the ground for themselves, mm-hmm. I came across the word queer and I thought, oh, that makes sense because that just felt like me. It just felt like I'm not the norm. And that's really yeah. all you need to know about that. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, yeah. I didn't feel like it, you know, connoted anything about who it is exactly that I'm attracted to or Mm -hmm. who I've been attracted to in the past or who it could be. It was just like, I'm queer. I'm just, I'm not like the rest of you. That's what it (laughs) meant for me. Um, And and yeah, I think it's a challenge. I think it remains a challenge in a lot of ways um, Uh because there are generations still alive who remember like (laughs) it being derogatory. And and there's generations, like my parents, like when I started using that word, they were like, what does that even mean? Like not only would they not have known, you know, gay or lesbian maybe, but like queer was like, it's like what that's what is that a, word you know, that's a weird word what is that yeah. yeah and I think I think that reclaiming process had already started by the time mm-hmm. you know I had I had started to come out but I think that was changing and now it's so it's so mainstream and so ubiquitous yeah. now and you have other labels right and I mm-hmm. think like that itself like being able to reclaim queer is just one part of it but then saying hey there are these other you know words that we could use to describe ourselves if we wanted to if we so right. chose like that don't have to stick to the main, you know, LGBT and that's all you can be. Like <laughs> it's, it's very, and I think again, like we're saying like that shift that's occurring with the generations is like mm-hmm. each time that like maybe the generation before me or my generation like reclaimed queer, but then, you know, it's going to go a step further. And so it's kind of exciting to see that that progress happen each time. Right. I mean, I think the word queer, I love that word because first of all, it helps people fall into a bucket that ne- people that need it people that want to fall into a bucket but not aren't sure exactly what bucket they fall into but they know that they fall into not straight <laughs> yeah. so i feel like it really helps people express that and express that they are not straight without having to identify as either bi or a lesbian or pan or whatever the case is because they're still figuring themselves out 
Yeah. And I think that, that almost that generality of it really Mm -hmm. helps. And I think it also pushes the notion that we're talking about, right. Which is that beyond labels, like it just leaves, it leaves it open-ended, but it it starts to say, well, you know, let's say all of us are identifying as queer now, like that range of experiences then is super broad, right. We also Mm -hmm. have to say that, you know, if a significant portion of people are identifying a certain way then it's on us to to not paint them as a monolith but also say like each person's experience then with queerness or or using that label mm-hmm. is so different right yeah. that makes sense um yeah. you had mentioned earlier about the process of coming out especially as a mm-hmm. south asian so yeah. can you share a little bit with us your experience about coming out and how you navigated that with yourself your family your friends and just um, how coming out itself is not just like something that you see in like you see in a TV, you know, like, oh, mom, dad, I'm gay. And then that's the end of that. It's like, it's a whole process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you, you hit it, the nail on the head for me. I think my experience and what I, again, really brought to Queen Daisy and that mentality was that the Western narrative or the, the white narrative of coming out being a conversation and mm-hmm. it just being like, I'm going to sit you down, hear the words <laughs> I get to say, and you get it. And you either accept me or not, yeah. um, is so not true for, for a lot of cultures, a lot of non-white cultures, but especially mm-hmm. Asians and South Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what fascinates me is also there isn't a language for it. Like South Asia and India are so uh, rich with the amount of, you know, languages and regions that we have. Um, right. And I think for me, the language was a barrier, not mm-hmm. because my parents don't speak English, they do. But if I, like I said, if I bring the word gay or lesbian to them or bring the word queer to them, right. it doesn't have a meaning really for them or mm-hmm. not one that they understand or know firsthand, right? Yeah. And I can't sit them down and say, you know what? I'm gay coming out of the closet. Like they don't know what that is. They're not going to have any bandwidth for that. <laughs> and that was my experience, right? And yeah. I think that narrative that it's a conversation, it's a one-time thing and there's either acceptance or not is a myth. It's yeah. a myth for a lot of people, but it's a, it, you know, especially maybe for white people, it's like, I'm sure there's some white people who <laughs> have that struggle too, but I hate that idea. And I don't know how that got normalized and kind of was the standard, but it wasn't true for me. And I don't think it's true for a lot of South Asians at all of mm-hmm. just coming out and having that be the case. It's, it is a process. You come out all the time. I think I yeah. still come out, you know, I think, for a lot of queer people just walking on the street as who you are dressed to the way you are looking the way that you do is outness. Right. Right. And it isn't always safe. And I think for me, even now in South Asian spaces, there's a tendency to just be on guard of like, am I, am I coming out in this space? You know, I'll -hmm. I'll give you an example. I went to a family friend's wedding a couple Mm -hmm. years ago and it was the first time I'd kind of atten- attended a wedding that was like not, I was like a family friend, but like my parents weren't close right. with them. So just like the kids. So it was just like, I was close to this person and they were getting married. And so my parents weren't there, but there were people at that wedding that like knew my parents mm-hmm. and I have short hair. I dress very masculine, <laughs> and I was there with my wife and yeah. it was a very jarring experience to kind of come across people I had grown up with in South Asian spaces who knew me as some person, some person or had an idea of me mm-hmm. and then having to shatter that or change that. And, and at times it's uncomfortable and at times it's um, not safe or it doesn't feel safe. And at times it can be fine and people don't care. Like yeah. I think that's a constant process. And I think for my family, especially like I give them due credit and I'm mm-hmm. extremely grateful that they're supportive 
that wasn't always the case. And like, I mean, they were, they were accepting, but it was kind of, it, like I said, it just didn't have the meaning. They didn't right. know what it meant. They were like, we love you, but we just don't know what this means. And right. so that process, it takes years. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that I could bring my future wife home. I'm lucky enough that I had a wedding and that they mm-hmm. were there. Um, mm-hmm. That's not true for most people. Right. And I yeah. think, like I'm grateful, but I th- also think like that's still evolving. Like for them to like ask about her. Now we live in the same city as them, so like bringing her over or it's all new. Right. It's all a process, you know. And and yeah, I'm grateful and I'm lucky. And I know a lot of people, especially in South Asian cultures, don't have that privilege. But I also think that that th- it is possible. There is mm-hmm. there is possibility of changing the perceptions, like we've talked about thus far. Of what does it mean? you know, right. and, and who are you as a person? And I think them getting to know me as a queer person is not that different from just me being their daughter or being their child. Right. And I think it's the same for my wife. They just know her for who she is rather than saying, oh, wait, like, who are you <laughs> sleeping with? How do you, yeah. you know, like, it doesn't have to just be about that. And I think shattering that or giving them the time and giving them the space, mm-hmm. having those difficult conversations wasn't easy always as well. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it just it takes time. And I think like I give them a lot of credit for do, for going through that because I think for me, like I think someone said this to me when I first started coming out of, mm-hmm. you know, I was frustrated. I was like, why don't people around me, including my family, like just get it? Like yeah. I told them it's who I am. Like I've been out for years. I've been waiting to tell you now <laughs> I am. Just, just get with it. You know, like why do I have to sit here and explain this stuff? Right. And someone said to me, and I say this now all the time to others, like when we come out to our parents we may have already been out for however long and we've had a process, right? I had internalized homophobia when I started my journey. I had a lot of things I had to face. Mm -hmm. We expect that like that years of those, that work will just be like instant for our families. Right. And because we're there and we just like, you know, and to think of it as, well, their coming out journey has just started. Yeah. And to, it shifted the way I thought about it. Right. Of like, mm-hmm. I'm maybe six or seven years into this, <laughs> but they're like on day one, you know, yeah. I, mean, I didn't start on day one with that understanding. I didn't start on day one with that language. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes work. It still takes work in South Asian spaces. I don't always, like I said, feel comfortable. Um, but, but coming out is more than just sitting down yeah. and saying it or finding <laughs> the words yeah. or explaining it in Hindi or whatever language you speak. Like, it's so much more than that. And, and the more examples we can have of that, and that's why I, I do bring it back to Queen Basie, the more examples mm-hmm. we can have of that is important because, you know, on the, sh- on the show, I have had parents who, who've had their child come out to them as whatever. And how did they navigate that? How did yeah. they, you know, they, there's a, there's an organization that like has, you know, Daisy parents. And so like finding ways and finding community for our parents and our families is also really important, but that, all of that is to say, you know, it comes through to the work that I do now. And yeah, and yeah coming, coming out isn't just one thing. It's, it's never one thing. <laughs> so it's not like Love, Simon. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, can life be like that? I don't know. Oh, God. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. um, but I love that you, you tie that back to Queen Desi because I feel like having those experiences and listening to other people's experiences that are just normal people like you know they're not stars they're not celebrities but they're just average people like you who are going through the same thing that you are and hearing their stories and being able to resonate with it being able to say hey that's how I feel hey that's what I went through and having that it makes you it kind of validates your own feelings in a way absolutely absolutely I think for me 
you know, I had a tough time with my a tough stretches with my parents, I would say. And I think even though it had it had progressed enough where, you know, they knew about my girlfriend, now wife mm-hmm. and stuff at the time that I started crying, they see I I talked to a parent of a of a of a trans child mm-hmm. on the show. And actually I've had two, but the second the second conversation I had with a parent was really illuminating and healing for me. Um you know, as a mother to hear her experiences and her reflection on what she did, you know, she did wrong. And she was, she acknowledged that and was her truth was so powerful. Yeah. Um, for me, secondhand, it was healing. It was yeah. healing for things that I felt um, I had not been, you know, <laughs> given or, or, or handled with my, the way my parents did it. Like it, it was healing for me because yeah. it, it lent me an understanding to what is their perspective. And maybe that's a conversation I I could never have, or maybe should have with my parents <laughs> after the fact, like, what was it like for them at the time? Yeah. But besides that, like having a conversation with a parent who's gone through the motion and said, you know, I messed up. Like, I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't, you know, and, and what they've learned and how they navigated that is so, so validating and so cathartic in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent just being able to hear someone else's story and hearing mm-hmm. their side, especially you hearing other moms and dads' sides. It's just like, Oh, okay. Well, that's, probably what my parents felt or maybe not but this is nice to hear that they are it's not for them they we don't see their side right for them just tell them that this is what's happening and then just expect them to be okay with it and move on but like you're saying coming out is a process to your parents but for them it's also a process because they are quote unquote coming out to their family and friends as a child as a having a child that is queer and that's very different in the south asian community especially because of the whole type of situation (laughs) yeah no I think that's a huge huge part of it and that's why that's why I think examples like this really matter but like pop culture matters right Mm -hmm. of like you know maybe an auntie or uncle has seen former shots plays or has seen made in heaven or has seen any number of the recent films that like address (laughs) this right like to just know like I remember part of my initial coming out conversation with my dad was like they were like do we know anyone that's like and and it was not to like out people which I didn't do but it was kind of a question of like well like are there examples of this and like I can't I can't give her and Joe her as an example that's not not relevant to anybody because no we're not like friends with them you can't be like oh yeah the guy who never came out like you want yeah you want examples in your community they want to know that they're not alone as well and and I think that that plays a huge aspect of it the community as well the community Mm -hmm. acceptance like I think my parents were surprised by how how non-eventful it was for their friends too like they came to my wedding and the photos were everywhere and so like like and people came and congratulated them and it they were like like we never told them and it was like they were fine with it which means that like you know those parents had their own processes whether their children went through it or they knew of people um and I think I heard recently on a panel, but I, I will re- reiterate that like we have to, we have to give our parents some credit. Like some parents are not with it, and I get that, and they may never be. Yeah. But some parents, some parents, if they do the work, can get there. Yeah, especially yeah. I feel like South Asian immigrant parents, they are already dealing with so much change in their life. You know, just packing up and leaving from this country that they've known their whole life to this whole other country they don't speak the language. Like I've heard, I've heard my dad's stories and. You know, at times I laugh because I'm like, oh, my God, that's so funny that that happened. But then I think about it. I'm like, wow, that must have been traumatizing for you when you like had to deal with not being able to speak English and people are making fun of you. Oh. And it's I, 
I think that's just going off of what you're saying. We do have to give our parents more credit because they're dealing with so much, especially in a in a time when things are so rapidly changing. And that when you give when you talk to them about all of this, you know, we just need to give them some ch- time and some space to be able to realize what it is that we just talked to them about and let them deal with that at their own time. If that makes yeah, sense. absolutely. And I, think, I think resources are key in that, right? I'll mention mm-hmm. that. I think now there are organizations, there's the one I mentioned, Lazy Rainbow Parents and Allies. There, there are organizations, there are books now, there are examples, both both Daisy and non for parents, which is really, really helpful whenever they're ready, if they're ever ready. Yeah, I just really want to hone in on the intergenerational trauma aspect of it, right? I think that exists already mm-hmm. for the diaspora, no matter how or where they left and came to. Some folks came under much more traumatic circumstances and um, some came out of their own volition. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think like that already exists for us as first generation or second generation diaspora children. But then to add the aspect of queerness or transness is um, additional trauma, right? So not only for them, but for us. And so when we mm-hmm. come out or when we think about coming out or we think about our communities mm-hmm. accepting or, or seeing us for who we are, we have to acknowledge yeah. like we carry that trauma and that history too. And I think a lot of, I don't hear it talked about enough in the diaspora, I guess, and especially I think mm-hmm. the queer community is a little more well-versed in some of these things, but like we carry generational trauma. We carry those things right. in our body. We carry the the histories and, the, and we may not know that. We may not be aware of that. We may not be able to call it out or mm-hmm. or deal with it in the in the <laughs> manners that we need to. But I think like for us, like when we're coming out or when we're trying to deal with how do we navigate life as X, Y, and Z person with all our identities, we have to give mm-hmm. space and room for reflection and healing and and be aware of you know, not passing that to the next generation. Like that's our, that's our chance to like interrupt that cycle. Right. And like Mm -hmm. the more aware of it, we are the better we can do. And I think like giving our parents that, that due credit is important as well for intergenerational trauma because we don't know what they carry. Um, And we don't know what, you know, besides just, you know, leaving a place or shifting their lives, what were their experiences before that? What were their parents' experiences? Mm-hmm. Like South Asian cultures are so rich in history, but we also have a deeply, deeply rooted in casteism and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I think like you might say, oh, those things don't apply to us or like maybe they don't, but that, those, those might be our privileges. They, yeah, they don't, they might be our privileges saying that they might be like, yeah. we have to be aware of those things at play when, when we're navigating queerness or transness, but, but, just in general when navigating how to deal with our parents and like trying to come from a place <laughs> of understanding. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I remember me and my mom, especially during quarantine, we've had like a lot of time together because I've been home the past year. And so like we'll go on like a nightly walk and she talks to me about her experiences growing up in India and when she first got her period and like when she first got married, like all this stuff, like she shares all these experiences of hers. And I'm like, wow, that's so different from what I've experienced, like my first period versus her first period, just like something so simple like that. There's such a huge difference between our experiences. And just to see, just to see that little bit of just to see that difference in our lives, even though I'm her daughter, it really speaks to the fact that, okay, I need to take a step back and understand where she's coming from, because her experiences are not my experiences. And I the only way I will we'll ever actually connect is if I'm able to actually learn 
where she's coming from. Yeah, where where she's coming from and what she's working through, right? Like, I think being exactly. able to have perspective on it and talk about it, as I hope we will one day with our kids, like, <laughs> it's still healing. It still evolves. Like, those things never go away, right? Like, understanding yeah. where they're coming from, but understanding what they're working through, too. Like, that must be so... Um, cathartic but also so so difficult for your mom to share those things I'm sure like I think like yeah. being able to have that understanding but also understanding like that's a that there's some processes still going on for them too as as they will be for us you know the rest of our lives yeah. 100% yeah. um I want to kind of shift the yeah. conversation a little bit into so into gender identity mm-hmm. so we've you know, as I was saying, you know, one in six people, one in six Gen Zers are now identifying as queer, etc. But I feel like the more we're becoming more accepting of our sexuality, the conversation of gender identity has become a larger thing. So and you yourself would identify as she slash they. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what it means to identify as, as she slash they? And how did you come to that realization? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it is so much of what we've been talking about. It's like that progression, right? Like I didn't, even when I came out as queer, I didn't have mm-hmm. the words for gender. Um, I I didn't do as well of a job separating sexuality and gender identity. I just didn't know any better. But I think right. as I started, became more and more confident in in my identity and explored that I became someone like when I came out as queer, I had really long hair. I still, you know, you carried purses and did my nails and I was a lot more (laughs) feminine, right. In a lot of traditional ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But I started to explore that. I, I cut my hair. I started dressing more masculine. um, And I remember my mom asking, bless her she was like do you like at one point was like do you want to be a boy like didn't understand what was happening because she already knew I was Mm. queer but like didn't there was clearly something she saw that I didn't see at the time and I was like no like that's not first of all that's not how that works like that's offensive (laughs) but like also for me and my truth like no and that's still the case like I'm not I'm not I don't identify as as trans masculine but I identify as non-binary because to me I am at once both and at once neither you know there mm-hmm. there are things about my wife says this all the time I have like a really high-pitched laugh and so sometimes she's like oh, you're so girly right <laughs> like there's some aspects of me that are really feminine and there's some aspects mm-hmm. of me that are really masculine and there's some that are neither there's some that are both um mm-hmm. I think the gender spectrum or our understanding of it as being binary is kind of the issue and was the issue for me because right. I thought well if I'm a girl I have to be a boy and that's not what I wanted to be either and it wasn't my truth um but just yeah. being able to explore that or have the words for it was not something I had I didn't know what non-binary mm-hmm. was you know if you listen to some episodes of Korean Daisy I call myself gender non-conforming which is like still mm-hmm. true but like was much more accepted at the time and now it's non-binary you know and yeah I may identify something else tomorrow right but like for me it's about the the use of the pronouns it's about saying that and acknowledging my past and my history and my my being born as female, which I sometimes mm-hmm. identify as. And mm-hmm. also saying like, I'm also not that. So I, my preferred pronoun is they, but I don't force people mm-hmm. to say it. I, don't, I haven't had that conversation with my family. I don't need them to call me that. that they can call me whatever they want and people can call me whatever yeah. they want, right? And I think for me, it's if they call me they or if they ask my pronouns, it's an acknowledgement of my both my non-binary gender identity but honestly my queerness as well which I still consider it kind of as an umbrella for myself um Mm -hmm. because it's not I'm not conforming to what you think I am 
what you think I look right. like, what, you know, I get misgendered all the time. I looking the way that mm-hmm. I do where they're like, sir, can I, you know, and I'll speak and something about my voice mm-hmm. says to them, I'm not a guy. And they're like, Oh, so sorry. You know, ma'am, ma'am. And I'm, yeah. the issue is the sir, ma'am. The issue is not that you got it wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so yeah. for me, they kind of encapsulates as a pronoun, a way to acknowledge mm-hmm. that I'm not a traditional female. I'm not a traditional male. Mm-hmm. I, um, I supersede both and I, you know, I don't confine to either. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm not a stickler about it. I, you know, I, yeah. people misgender me or misgender, you know, you don't use pro- my pronouns or like I said, like my family does. And that's fine. Like you can know me yeah. as you, like my wife uses she for me and that's totally like, mm-hmm. that's her preference. And I don't, I'm not going to police that and nor is it my responsibility to do so. But for, mm-hmm. for those, especially people that I meet maybe at work or people that I meet new, I, I say mm-hmm. like if they ask, I'll say like they is my preferred because you know me as someone else and and I'm at the end of the day Priya and that's like, that right. that's <laughs> my identity and that's my my journey with being non-binary and again like I right. said that might change but I think it's to all of that is to say being given that language or having that progression happen as I've been in the community has been mm-hmm. has been really affirming for me because I didn't have the words for that before. And I wasn't able to explore that until the society around me kind of changed and allowed that to happen too. That came out as queer a long time before I started using these pronouns too. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So two, two things I want to touch on about what you said. Um, in terms of the sir and ma'am thing. So if you identify as non-binary what would be the preferred words to be called if not sir and if not ma'am there are pronouns i don't mm-hmm. know how to say them properly there are pronouns <laughs> that people use that are a little more neutral it's not easy okay. um but i you know I, for me i i don't mind either i think the like i okay. said i think for me it's more about the the binary thinking of it of thinking You're either a sir or a ma'am and you're going to fit in right. either one, you know? And I think, for example, like saying Mr. or Miss before my last, mm-hmm. name, like I use mm-hmm. MX because that's, but that's an evolving of language that has happened that didn't exist when yeah. I was first coming out, you know? And like, again, I didn't even know it was a thing. Yeah, so it's a thing. <laughs> like, it's a new thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and again, like that, that, but like allowing those things to become more mainstream. I think there are people who might have, you know, an alternative to sir or ma'am. I, I don't, I don't have one. I don't enforce one, mm-hmm. but I would, yeah, I think the thinking is more of what I like. That's why I do like when people ask me my pronouns and I am able to say they, because you might think I'm a she, or you might think I'm a he, but I'm neither right. like, you know, and I like challenging <laughs> that assumption. Makes sense. So I guess, okay, let's talk a little bit about gender roles yeah. and how that connects with gender identity. So, As society progresses, we're obviously having the conversation where, you know, a man doesn't mean you have to be interested in cars. You have to be dressing very like, like flannel. Like I'm just thinking of like literally stereotypical what you think of a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to be that type of man. And a woman, you don't have to dress in like skirts and the high heels and makeup, et cetera. Like that's not the case anymore. Like both genders are allowed to do and wear whatever they want. And so... I guess what my question is then, if we're breaking down gender roles to a point that all these roles don't fit with one gender, how is that then different than 
identifying as non-binary if we're already breaking down gender roles? Sure. So for me, what you described is not personally, Mm -hmm. it doesn't apply to me as a gender role. Like what I would think of Uh dressing sense and things as Mm -hmm. gender presentation. So it's how I signal to the world what my gender is. Right. So maybe as a girl, as a young girl, if I'm, I'm born female, I might be handed, you know, frocks and skirts and makeup and, and that's, Mm -hmm. those are gender presentation. That's to signal to the world, like a little bow on a, you know, baby's head. If it's pink, it signals to the world they're a girl. And that thinking is placed in binarism, right? So it's saying that you can mm-hmm. either be a boy or a girl. That's yeah. gender presentation. Those are like external factors that we show people. So for me as a non-binary person, if I'm wearing masculine clothes or like bonus store mm-hmm. and I go into a men's section, someone might see my clothes and say, oh, you're a guy. Like, oh, sir. Hello. Like, mm-hmm. and make that assumption based on my gender presentation, right? Of how I, and I think okay. that is complicated for any gender non-conforming roles, but especially trans folks, because mm-hmm. whether there's there's a fascination and a fixation for folks, for maybe cishet folks, about what gender presentation is supposed to look like and what is passing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you pass right. as a certain gender and, and what you look like being who you identify as. So if I look like a guy, mm-hmm. I don't identify as a guy. That 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 schism causes friction, right? And, and a lack of safety for, for lack of a better word. <laughs> but what you're describing in terms of roles, like for me, would uh-huh. be in a heterosexual marriage, the man earns, goes out and earns the money and the woman stays home and cooks and takes care of the kids. That is a role, mm-hmm. right? That she is expected right. to, as a woman, expected to do X, Y, and Z thing. And those are really prevalent in South Asian cultures, right? I think yeah. those, those are what I would call roles. And the challenging of those mm-hmm. roles ex- exists without the gender identity, even if you are a man and a woman in a heterosexual cisgender, you know, if you identify as cisgender and you're in a heterosexual marriage, you mm-hmm. challenge those roles. The women who are, you know, career, career moms and like going out and doing all the things or like the men who are stay at home dads, or, those are, they're challenging gender roles. That's because right. as a man, if they identify as a man, they are expected to do X, Y, and Z thing. And they're changing that narrative that has nothing to do with how they identify right so if they mm-hmm. identify as that's that's the identity right and that's the presentation if they identify as a man whether they were born that way or not what is it mm-hmm. that they feel like present themselves mm-hmm. in the world like that has nothing to do with the roles now that you know men are supposed to, that can be changed or not maybe they're maybe right. they identify as a man and they were born mm-hmm. or something else and they're still like, I'm going to bring home the bacon, you know, like that's a gender yeah. role that they're sticking to. So to me, those are really separate um, and they exist independent of each other. I guess they're related uh-huh. in some ways. Sure. But I think that's maybe just society breaking down our assumptions about gender, um, not, mm-hmm. not only identity, but also roles. Um, but yeah, yeah, I see them. I see them as extremely, extremely different things, honestly. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm. I mean, th- I appreciate the yeah, education because that's because <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I read up on it and everything. And I feel like that's some like when I had that conversation with other people as well, that's the question they ask me. And I'm just like, I'm not sure I can't answer that question. And I feel like that's something that you would have to ask with somebody that is non-binary who would have those answers. Sure. Yeah. No, Especially I, from their own experience. I think it's I think it's a valid question. I think a lot of it. It's better to ask than assume, I think. And like, right. I could be wrong too. I'm not saying you're saying that I'm an authority. <laughs> so I'm sure there are things that I, I say that I, I mess up and I make mistakes about too. But I think for me, those are, that's the, the separation. It's always better to ask and, and deal with that. And I think like, that's, that's something like for my mom, if she saw me wearing, you know, men's clothes, are you a boy now? Like, that's not, that's not how gender identity worked for me. 
maybe that's mm-hmm. how it works for other people or how they present or how they choose to identify. But yeah, I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about it and explore it. Cause I think it is something that also evolves, you know, it changes the yeah. time and it changes really fast. Um, so we don't always have the right answers. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I think maybe it was like probably five, 10 years ago where the pronouns they and them didn't even exist. It was either she or he, and then there were trans people and that was it. It wasn't, there was no non-binary. That wasn't a topic of conversation. And the fact that that's now a thing, I feel like it gives people that are struggling with their gender identity, a place to be able to figure themselves out and figure out what it is, what, what gender they identify with or which gender they don't identify with, but basically be able to question themselves and figure out who they truly are without having to fit into a certain bucket. Yeah. And I think that's, that's my point. I I will say, I think that those things existed, but maybe weren't as mainstream before. Mm. I think like, I think them being mainstream has allowed that conversation to happen, but I think the problem still exists with, and I always go back to querying this because it's just how I think about it, but the problem still exists with the labels themselves. The problem still exists Mm -hmm. with the binary thinking of, male or female or other like like the categories are really the if we're talking about uprooting the system or changing the system yeah we have to do away with all of that i'm glad that (laughs) pronouns and labels like help us understand the world and explore who we are but we don't have to we don't have to label ourselves if we don't want to we can change those labels when we want to like we have the agency and maybe the knowledge of that has become more widespread in the recent years um i i will always go back to man, these labels are really confusing and hard for people. And the problem that we are mm-hmm. like, oh, let's understand that, right? And I'm I'm all for that. And I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. But I want to remind folks, especially listening, like you don't, it, you, you don't have to label it. Like the labels are actually right. like, let's keep perspective on the issue mm-hmm. is that like people want to place us in buckets. Like you're saying, being able to not place mm-hmm. someone is, that is the real victory here of like having it yeah. so mainstream and normalized is saying, Look, you don't you don't have to identify in a certain way. You can if you want to. And if someone is mm-hmm. identifying as a certain thing, you're you might make assumptions about that person automatically. And why don't we get to know the person themselves rather than just the label? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like we'll hopefully get to a time where the default will be that where you know you don't ha- you don't automatically assume what person what their gender identity is just based on what you see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to touch on a little bit of your activism, especially in the queer community. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails and how you got involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I think like I, I stand again on the shoulders of folks that come before me because there are just so many organizations, especially in the US that I'm grateful for uh, existing, um, but that are South Asian queer organizations that, that are really for queer folks and trans folks. Like I think our chosen family is like a lifeline. Um, mm-hmm. And so knowing that other people like you exist can can really just just change things. And I think I owe a lot to those organizations. Um, I didn't know they existed. My Googling, as I mentioned earlier, like really <laughs> was proved fruitful and, and helped me find those those groups. And just I literally just started going and started to get involved. Um, but I found that for me, getting involved was, again, just like was affirming because I felt like I was fighting for something and I was creating, fighting to create spaces for folks like me, um, maybe mm-hmm. out of selfishness because I wanted to see more folks like me. Um, <laughs> but in both instances, so in LA, I was part of Sathrang, um, and in New York, I was part of Salga. Both of those organizations had existed for 
decades before I joined them. Um, Mm -hmm. So being able to look at those organizations, what they had done, um, and then, and then going to conferences, doing like, you know, what might seem like boring to other people, but really fun for me, going to panels, going to events, um, learning from folks, exchanging ideas. um, And, and yeah, in some cases we were doing direct actions. We were, you know, petitioning the city or marching in parades or, um, you know, in a lot of ways, like our work centered around visibility um, like I said, just being able to show that we exist, but also saying like, how are we improving our communities? How can we create spaces mm-hmm. uh, or safe spaces more at that um, for folks like us? And I think that right. that work has not only existed for decades, but is like the most core of it and will continue to exist. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I highly, I mean, I highly encourage folks to get involved. I think getting involved is in, in any aspect for any cause, right. Is, <laughs> is something that is, some, it's necessary for society to like mm-hmm. kind of progress and improve. Um, but especially for South Asian queer folks, like I said, like having that community can be really affirming and it's not just about party spaces or, you know, like Salga has yeah. like a, monthly support group that has been around for decades and like just vital resources, right. That like you really, even in a pandemic, like a need. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, Yeah. like supporting those, those organizations and their work um, continues to be really important for me, even though I'm not maybe on the board of these organizations anymore, but I still am so um, ingrained in what they do and fully support those, those efforts. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I did not know about these um, organizations that you mentioned, but I'll definitely look into that because that sounds amazing. I love that they have a support group. And I feel like there is definitely a need for places for people, uh, queer South Asian folks to go and just talk to people and other people who relate to them as well and are going through the same yeah. experiences that they are. Yeah, I think I think it's, you know, the needs of the the needs of the hour have changed, I will say. like mm-hmm. It's harder to be a brick and mortar organization in in this day and age, obviously still in a pandemic, especially during the pandemic. <laughs> um, I'll point people to our to the Queer DC website. We have a resources page, and we have mm-hmm. a list of community organizations. I, I built it out right. to be mostly U.S., but I've, I've tried to figure out you know and name and link to other organizations in Canada and the UK and in South Asia mm-hmm. as well several outside of India mm-hmm. as well um but i think like having a running list of those is important i hadn't seen that anywhere but so i wanted to shout that out but i also wanted to say like you know these community organizations existed in and and were founded in eras when not only did social media not exist but often there weren't physical spaces where you could meet um a lot of Mm -hmm. salva's early organizing was was mailers and newsletters and and so to see that work kind of evolve is really really gratifying to say like hey this organization now can like crowdsource funds if they need or reach out to new people that like beyond geographical regions right and there are many across the u.s but you don't have to be in a state that has an organization to be involved now right um, I, I'll say like social media has really changed that. And that's something that like Queen Daisy tried to do as well. But now there are so many other profiles on Instagram and stuff that feature queer Daisy stories or mm-hmm. queer Daisy couples. I, I never could have imagined, right, that you would just have hundreds and hundreds of examples or thousands of examples oh around the world. Right. And so like 100%. social media has changed the game completely. So you don't even have to. I feel like it's been so helpful. Yeah. Like if you look at like so many um, queer couples like Sophie and Anjali and um, there's so many other I can't even remember on the top of my head, but they've been such a vital part of being able to relate to somebody from that community and seeing that, you know, that they're living the same lives as you are and they're not celebrities. They're just 
average human beings. Yeah, and I think like that that accessibility has changed, right? Like you're saying, like being able to be a part of their lives or see a part of their lives. Um, mm-hmm. You don't even have to be in these organizations anymore to like be involved in yeah. the crazy <laughs> community or be a fan or be an ally. Um, you can be and you should be. These community organizations are vital in that way. But I think like they serve a different function now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it can be harder to exist in a world where social media, um, you know, harder for these organizations to exist in a world where social media kind of breaks down those barriers anyway. Um, mm-hmm. then, then people might be like, well, I don't need to like go to X, Y, and Z event. <laughs> right? I need to... But those, those organizations then do such, such vital work for the community and organizing that can't be done just passively by liking a photo. And I think it's great to see right. both exist. Like we didn't have the examples before, like Queen Daisy or hearing narratives didn't exist before. Seeing Instagram profiles mm-hmm. of couples didn't exist before. And those things are necessary. Um, but so are, yeah. these, so are these community organizations and so is their support. And I think like mm-hmm. evolving in that need of what both of those bring is, is yeah, is vital to going forward, but really vital to support at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not only do these um, organizations provide like a safe space, but they also provide a way to connect with other people in the community as well. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and during a pandemic, it has been even harder, I think, for folks. I mean, we got a lot of messages early in the pandemic of people not feeling mm-hmm. safe at home or, you know, not being oh. out to families and just being stuck. And like, it's it's been hard for a lot of people. And I think um, having outlets, having spaces, having even if they're online um, mm-hmm. is is helpful. I wish we could do more. And I, I'm, I hope that people have continued to find safety. But I, we have to realize like in our communities, you know, you, even something like a pandemic or quarantining um, can be so complicated. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Priya, it has been wonderful having you on today. I mean, I have loved our conversation. I loved hearing about your experiences, getting educated, getting my ass handed to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved having these conversations with you. Like, I feel you're so educated and you are so deep in the world where you know so much about it and are able to portray that to other people and help others. And I think it's been great everything that you've been doing with creating Daisy and just in your writing and everything. Oh my God. Thank you so much. First of all, you did nothing wrong. So don't like, (laughs) I'm glad that we had these conversations. I think for me, you know, I, I step into these things feeling like I can learn also. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I've learned from you as well. And I, I'm hoping that, yeah, people learn from me as well, but I have a lot more learning to do. Um, So thank you for calling me educated. I just, uh, I just am passionate about these things. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think, having conversations like this is vital for our community. And and I really, really Mm -hmm. appreciate you and this podcast for creating spaces for those conversations, because if anything, we talked about so many ways that this is still necessary. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and it's been really, really great. So thank you so much for having me and, and talking about all of this with me. Oh, thank you so much, Priya. I really have, it's been great having you on here. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much.